Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Russia has moved tactical nuclear weapons outside its own borders for the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The new location, Belarus, Ukraine's northern neighbour, which was a launchpad for Russia's all-out invasion. This is a huge about-face, really, and very much, I think, epitomises Belarus's transformation from trying to balance between the West and Russia to, I mean, you know, Russia's closest possible ally, even though I don't think Russia really sees the relationship as one of equals. Is this the creation of a Soviet Union light? We explain the growing but complex military ties between Russia and Belarus. In the midst of the Ukraine war, NATO is looking for a new leader. Is Britain's Defence Secretary in with a chance and how much does it matter anyway? It's not always easy with 31 allies to keep the family together. NATO is not an orchestra which can play without a conductor. And the job of Secretary General in keeping the family together is an important one. And we hear from Estonia, where British troops lead NATO deterrence, about the Baltic state's latest threat assessment. Russia as a threat will never go away. They still have the same approach uh, during the, uh, as during the Second World War. So destroy everything and then move and don't care about people. A couple of weeks ago, we heard from Kyiv how Russia had begun pounding Ukraine with air assaults every second night. Now those attacks have become daily and sometimes in daylight hours. But far less noticed has been a military manoeuvre by Moscow that could become hugely significant. It has begun to move tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. A few years ago, this northern neighbour of Ukraine had a constitutional ban on nuclear weapons, was scolding Moscow for the annexation of Crimea, offering to broker peace. But having been a launchpad for the all-out invasion of Ukraine, Belarus now appears to have completed the nailing of its colours to the Russian mast. It's easy to see Belarus as President Putin's poodle caving in to the Kremlin to save itself from the same fate as Ukraine. But the relationship is more complex. A recent study concluded Russia's military reliance on Belarus, including for vital supplies, could eventually become a weakness. That study was written by Emily Ferris from defence think tank Rusi. Belarus and Russia have been close for many years. It was probably Russia's, really Russia's closest ally when the Soviet Union fell apart. And they've got a range of uh, sort of framework agreements between the two of them that allowed them to always operate sort of politically and economically and uh, militarily in tandem, really. Um, but over the last few years, Belarus has come under quite a bit of pressure economically. But what happened in 2020 in Belarus really, I think, was the trigger for a much closer relationship with Russia, which is where you had presidential elections, which in Belarus are are not free and fair, of course. And the fact that Lukashenko won was very much a foregone conclusion. The um, security services very violently repressed the demonstrators. Thousands of people were arrested. There were very significant allegations of torture. And Belarus became a bit of an international pariah. And so that really pushed Belarus uh, to a much closer relationship with Russia. And what followed from there was a slew of sort of security arrangements. You know, they signed a joint security doctrine, amendments to the Belarusian constitution that pretty much allowed Russia and Belarus a high degree of interoperability. And all of this really set the staging ground for Russia to, to stage the invasion of Kiev from north from Belarus. 
And is the move of tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus about making them more deployable or is it just about being seen to be moving them? I mean, I think it's probably the latter. Um, I'm sure there are scenarios in which, um, you know, Russia might consider the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm sure we could all envisage what they might be. For now, I don't think that's that's so much the reality. But certainly the projection of power to demonstrate that Belarus is entirely willing to host Russian nuclear weapons, um, which is something that, by the way, Lukashenko had for years tried to push back on. He was always saying that he would never host a Russian military base. So this is a huge about face, really, and very much, I think, epitomizes uh, Belarus's transformation from trying to balance between the West and Russia to, I mean, you know, R- Russia's closest possible ally, um, even though I don't think Russia really sees the relationship as one of equals. Um, and certainly, I think that's a, a cause for extreme concern from Lukashenko's side. And what is the dynamic here? Who's getting what out of these closer ties or seemingly closer ties? Well, there are a range of different things, really. So um, obviously, Russia has the political capital of having a, a close ally that's also a neighbour. Um, there's the security aspects. So they train jointly together. Then there's the economic aspect. So Russia being the main investor, but it also buys a great deal of uh, refined oil from Belarus. Um, and then there's, I suppose, more symbolic things like um, the union state, which is, in, in theory, it's a sort of framework agreement that Belarus and Russia signed in the 1990s. And it was supposed to just sort of bring them closer together politically and economically um, and a few security guarantees together. But really, it was pretty meaningless until, I'd say, about 2018, when Putin resumed the presidency. And then he and a lot of the sort of senior administration in the Kremlin started talking quite a lot more seriously about the idea that Belarus and Russia could be sort of uh, unified. So the Union state is progressing. Nine years ago, President Lukashenko condemned Russia's annexation of Crimea, and yet later he allowed his country to become a launchpad for the all-out invasion. He must be softening, conceding to Belarus being part of perhaps this new Union, Soviet Union light. Well, I think what happened with Crimea in 2014 was that Lukashenko was still at that time trying to present Belarus as something of a mediator. So to suggest that Belarus, as a close ally of Russia, was able to have some sort of influence. Now, obviously, those negotiations didn't really come to anything. um, And I don't think in the West there was a very serious sense that that Belarus was a neutral party in any way. But like I said, I think that the, the domestic events in Belarus have pushed have pushed Lukashenko to, um, I suppose, in a, in a rather unhappy way towards Russia. And it certainly seems to me that Lukashenko isn't in, entirely satisfied with the current relationship with Putin. To what extent is the fear of suffering the same kind of fate as Ukraine the actual thing that's been driving the acceptance of this union state concept in Belarus? Well, I think there, I think there is a concern that... Russia has territorial designs on Belarus. And I think my response to that would be that that Russia doesn't necessarily need to. So, you know, I'm not really of the view that that Russia sort of would favour a territorial incursion, you know, of the kind of Crimea um, when it has such um, a great degree of control and influence already. So the union state goes a long way to try to um, sort of manifest that. But there, there sort of is no need for Russia 
to take over Belarus in that sense. And what is the public attitude to Russia in Belarus? The public attitude, certainly from from polling that we've seen and from social media discussions, are that I think they're they're fairly sceptical of their own um, administration. I think there isn't the sense of at least quite genuine affection for the leader, which which you do find in Russia. And yes, you know, I think there is still a sort of a regard for Russia, certainly, um, although I think the war might have sort of shifted that somewhat, especially, I think, in, in parts of Belarus where they were hosting Russian soldiers and there was sort of discussions about the behaviour of Russian soldiers there. I think there was a feeling that this war had kind of you know, dragged Belarus into something that it, uh, that it didn't particularly want. And obviously, I think the close relationship historically between Belarus, Russia and Ukraine, you know, ethnically, linguistically and culturally, as well as as historically, makes it very uncomfortable, I think, for, um, you know, for them to fight against each other. And I think that's certainly something, at least in Russia as well, people have really, really grappled with psychologically. And given the repeated uncertainties about President Lukashenko's health, sudden disappearances and public view, what, what happens to Russia's military reliance on Belarus if Lukashenko were to lose power? <laughs> Um, well, it's very difficult to say because it becomes a real challenge to identify a successor. Now, a lot of people have suggested, uh, you know, perhaps one of his sons. And I think the, the general consensus is that he might, um, you know, select his oldest son. I think his name is Victor, um, who <clears throat> is sort of uh, in the, um, controls the security services at the moment. And that would be sort of, you know, a trusted successor. But whether this person would be sort of accepted by the public, I think that's something that, that Putin is certainly watching very closely. But I think that the, the events of, of 2020 in Belarus, where there were all these protests and there was a real threat to Lukashenko's power, the Kremlin was watching that very closely. And what you saw was they assembled their National Guard on the border uh, with Belarus and suggested that they could assist if necessary. Um, but they didn't really intervene and you didn't really see them actually condemning opposition figures. I think, you know, Russia was sort of waiting to see what would happen because if the opposition had come into power, you know, Russia would absolutely have brokered a relationship with them. So Russia was very much hedging its bets. If Lukashenko wasn't there, I, I think, you know, there isn't any particular personal loyalty between them. And I think Lukashenko is quite aware of that. And I And I wonder if that sort of concerned him quite a lot. Emily Ferris, really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Absolute pleasure. This is Zitrep. One figure we often talk about and hear from on Sitrep is the NATO Secretary General. As the public face and top diplomat of the world's largest military alliance, they arguably hold a very powerful position in the world. But they're not a decision maker. They are a civil servant there to facilitate decisions by the political and military leaders of NATO countries. Oh, and right now, the job is up for grabs. Jens Stoltenberg is due to step down in the autumn after nine years and three extensions of his term. The UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace is just one of the heavily rumoured candidates. So what are his chances and how much does it really matter who gets the job and how is that actually decided? Well, if anyone can explain it's Dr. Jamie Shea. He should be able to do it. He's a former Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO and was also spokesperson for three Secretary Generals. Great to speak to you today, Dr. Shea. Um, how much does it matter who is NATO Secretary General? 
Uh, well, good afternoon, Kate, and thank you very much for the invitation to appear. It matters a lot because it's not always easy with 31 allies to keep the family together. Uh, there can be uh, internal tensions uh, from time to time. You also have to make the call for allies to spend more on defence, and this message doesn't always go down well. And, of course, uh, there is a, a great need uh, to explain what Europeans are doing for the common defence uh, in the United States, particularly after the Trump years. So I would say that uh, NATO is not an orchestra which can play without a conductor. And the job of Secretary General in keeping the family together is an important one. So who does it? That's important as well. And Jamie, you were spokesman for the last British person to hold the job, George, now Lord Robertson. Did that work in the UK's favour? Well, I certainly think that after Brexit, NATO is an important organisation for the UK in sort of showing that, uh, as is often said, it may not be in the EU any longer, but it's definitely in Europe and it takes its obligations to defend its allies seriously. Yes, you know, having some of the top jobs uh, like the Secretary General and the UK has held that position three times, I think probably more than any other single country, uh, does matter. But of course, uh, you know, if the UK is not successful in getting the Secretary General job, it can fall back on the fact that it, uh, until recently, uh, with Sir Stu Peach, had the chairmanship of the military committee of NATO, which was, is one of the top jobs, has traditionally the deputy Sackur job, and always has an assistant secretary general. So yes, nice to have the, the top plum job, but the UK is still strongly represented in NATO, even without that. And in terms of the top plum job, how is the secretary general actually chosen? Well, it's rather like the uh, the election of the Pope in the Vatican, which means that it all takes place in snow. But seriously, it does take place in sort of great sort of secrecy. The, the dean, i.e. the longest serving member of the North Atlantic Council, has the job of inviting the ambassadors to, to have tea with him, usually you know, on Wednesday afternoons every week, uh, and to say, right, you know, allies, so which candidates are you putting forward? His job then is to sort of canvas opinion, to see who's got the best chances. Once he gets a sort of a good position who the sort of top two or three are, i.e. The, the ones most likely to achieve the consensus of all 31 member states, he has the difficult job of telling other delegations, look, sorry, but I don't think your candidate has got any chance, so best to withdraw. Uh, and so uh, in this kind of very informal way, round after round, cup of tea after cup of tea, the field is narrowed down until it becomes pretty clear who can get that consensus. But there are certain prerequisites. Obviously, you need the OK of the big capitals. Washington is absolutely key, but also the UK, uh, the French, obviously, the, the Germans, uh, the, the, the Italians. Yes, uh, consensus of all of the 31, but where the, the top sort of four or five countries have really come to an agreement, to be honest with you, it's not easy for the others to hold things up for very long. It all sounds a bit opaque and, and not necessarily very democratic for an organisation that's supposed to be a champion of democratic values. I, I wouldn't really say that. I mean, it doesn't mean that we have bad secretary generals. If you look at, you know, 80% have been effective in their job. So I'm not sure that the procedure necessarily brings about bad choices. But you've got to remember that it's not easy for a, a prime minister, for example, to say while serving in office, look, I want to go to Brussels. I, I want to leave the country. I want to go off and work at NATO. So I understand the, the idea of transparency. But, you know, you're looking for a very, very, very 
special person to do this kind of job. It's not an easy job. You know, sometimes quiet diplomacy is the best form mm. of diplomacy, whether it suits an age of sort of transparency or, or, or not. So they want someone who's going to work best for the Allies. What are they actually looking for this time? And is it any different? No, not really. I mean, the one thing I would say, Kate, is that the last two incumbents have been prime ministers. Lots of these top international jobs are going to uh, heads of state because they're the people who, who know how to run things. Uh, they're the people who have the, you know, the roller decks of connections around the world who can phone up the White House and get through within 30 seconds uh, and that broad experience that you need. Uh, and now that NATO has had prime ministers in the job for the last two iterations, it's not going to be easy not to have another prime minister. You know, prime ministers are good at the three key things that a NATO Secretary General needs to do. Super communicator, super diplomat, super manager. So not a prime minister, but a defence secretary. Ben Wallace uh, is rumoured to be putting his hat in the ring. What are his chances, do you think? The, the answer is I really don't know uh, it, to the extent that I'm not a NATO ambassador and I'm not participating in these tea uh, afternoons where obviously the credentials are being debated. But what I would say uh, uh, as a, a NATO observer is that he will have a strong chance, uh, he, despite the point I made about prime ministers, because as I said, the UK is a big contributor to to NATO. That's recognised. The UK obviously has good relations with many allies, particularly in the Scandinavian countries and in Central and Eastern Europe. He's been a very, very strong leader on Ukraine, which I think the Central and Eastern Europeans in particular, plus the United States, uh, will recognise. And he's somebody also who uh, has managed to get a grip on the Ministry of Defence. Not always an easy task, as we know, being a defence minister, uh, and on the reform of the armed forces and strategic review. So if the job isn't going to go by default to a prime minister, then I'm sure that Ben Wallace will have a very, very, very strong chance. But I also mm. have to say that there is also a sense, Kate, among the Central and Eastern Europeans that, look, you know, we're, we're the guys on the front line. Poland is now spending, or wants to spend 4% of GDP on defence. You know, we've been in NATO for a while, so our time has come. And there are many, many people who think uh, that it's time for a woman also to do the job uh, because NATO has never had a secretary general who is a woman. And there are plenty of very good female prime ministers uh, on the European scene today. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's an open field, at least at the moment. Now, Jamie, I mentioned at the start that Jens Stoltenberg has had his term extended three times already. In February, his spokesperson said he has no intention to seek another extension of his mandate, but that doesn't definitely rule out another extension. I just want to play you a bit from a conversation between Mr. Stoltenberg and the previous Secretary General, Anders Forasmussen, at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit a couple of weeks ago. If allies ask you to stay on, are you ready to... To continue and celebrate the 75th uh, anniversary summit uh, in DC next year? Well, also I have made it clear that I, I have no other plans than to, to leave uh, this uh, fall. I will be in, uh, almost twice as long as, uh, as originally planned, uh, and, uh, and that's what I have to say about that. Jamie, what do you make of that? Uh, I, I believe Jens Stoltenberg. You know, he's a very upright Norwegian and he speaks his mind, um, and he's said that repeatedly. 
uh, and he has had those extensions. So he certainly, you know, doesn't need to sort of stay on just to prove that he can do the job. He's proved that uh, mm. already. It's an exhausting job. And you, you see on their faces, Kate, quite frankly, as yeah. you do with prime ministers and presidents, the sort of the impact of the, the stresses and the strains uh, as the years go by. And he's still, you know, comparatively young. He can go and do something else uh, with his life. So he said that. And also, to be frank, I, I feel that, you know, if NATO says, look, you know, we can't find anybody else. There are no other good candidates. Uh, you know, we have to turn to Jens because he's the only person who could do the job. Well, I don't think that would sort of speak very highly of the state of alliance of politics or politicians uh, uh, these days. You know, rotation is a good thing in the position. You know, the war in Ukraine is going to carry on for a long time. Uh, we've got the US elections coming up next year. Who knows what's going to happen then? Uh, you know, we've got the need to bring NATO and the EU closer together. To, you know, so in other words, there's lots of, you know, very big new tasks ahead for NATO. And Jens has been a great Secretary General, uh, but maybe some fresh blood and some fresh legs at this particular stage, rather than asking Jens to soldier on, uh, is what the Alliance really needs. So, and given, you know, all of the excellent candidates who are being suggested, nobody is indispensable. As General de Gaulle once said, the cemeteries are full of indispensable people. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, he, the, you know, no, uh, so I would sort of expect and hope that in Vilnius, NATO's upcoming summit in July, uh, NATO will announce who the next Secretary General is going to be. To be frank, NATO, on the one hand, has got a luxury of good candidates, but better to have too many good candidates than too few, right? Here, here, Dr. Jamie Shea, thank you very much for your time today. Good to speak to you. Thank you. Well, in preparation for that NATO summit, which Jamie mentioned, NATO foreign ministers have been meeting in Norway rather than their usual gathering point in Brussels. Some of the ministers also used it as an opportunity to be seen elsewhere in Europe and do a bit of diplomatic signalling. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, stopped off in Sweden in support of its year-old bid to join NATO, still blocked by Turkey. From the perspective of the United States, the time is now to uh, finalise Sweden's accession. Uh, again, it's um, uh, taken um, very significant steps to address very legitimate concerns. We look forward to this process being completed in the weeks ahead. Uh, we have no doubt that uh, it can be, and it should be, and we expect it to be. The UK's Foreign Secretary James Cleverley paid a similar moral support visit to Sweden and also went to Estonia, meeting British military personnel on the ground and aboard HMS Albion. On the ship today, we have personnel from the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, the Royal Air Force and the British Army. The recent exercise, Spring Storm, demonstrated our ability to reinforce the battle group to a brigade size and it tested our troops on Estonia's tough terrain. Well, Forces News reporter Rosie Layden was at that exercise in Estonia. Uh, Rosie, just put this into context a bit, if you will, because Spring Storm has been an annual exercise for quite some years. What's the significance of what James Cleverly is saying there about reinforcing a battle group to brigade size? Well, I think the, the point of this exercise is it's an Article 5 scenario. So that means um, the idea is Estonia has been attacked and this is the NATO response to that attack. And um, 
Britain has a permanent presence in Estonia, but during the exercise that very much increases and they're testing that ability to bring it in at speed. And we saw that on a number of fronts. So we saw Royal Marines conducting an amphibious landing on the coastline just um, at Tallinn, and then we saw French paratroopers coming in by air. And this springstorm has been running for, for, this is the 21st exercise springstorm, so it's been running for a while, but it used to be very much a national test of the reserve, whereas now it is this much bigger thing. And and they're really just showing that they can expand what is already, you know, the enhanced forward presence. It is a sizable NATO um, NATO footprint, but they can make it much bigger at, at short notice. And that's what they were looking at. Of course, Britain doubled its troop numbers in Estonia within days of the invasion of Ukraine. That was only a temporary surge. So what's the scale of Britain's presence now? Is it effectively what it was back in 2021? Well, well, pretty much. I mean, it changed for the exercise. So they did make a point of uh, bringing in these much bigger numbers for the exercise. So it went up to 1500 during spring storm, but then it's come back down to around 900. And that is, they don't like to give exact numbers as it does fluctuate depending on the exact units. But yes, it is around 900, which is much more like the 2021 presence. And the invasion of Ukraine raised all sorts of concerns in Eastern Europe at the time, with more than a year since the initial shock. What's the feeling in Estonia about the level of risk it faces right now? Well, they take that threat very seriously, and they always have. They just don't see Russia as a neighbour that can develop into a friend. And they they remember that that threat. They were, of course, occupied by the Soviet Union post World War Two for around fifty years, so it's real for them. And when they saw, um, when they they still see the the invasion of Ukraine, they they see it on a very personal level, and they relate some of the um, alleged war crimes and and things that have been taking place in Ukraine very very much to their own past. And and they do see themselves as still facing that threat. And, and we we um, they shared an intelligence report from their foreign intelligence service. And they, they in that, the assessment is that, no, there's not going to be an attack on Estonia in 2023 because all Russia's assets, troops, equipment are focused on Ukraine. And in fact, arguably, there are less people along that Estonian-Russian border than than previously. But um, they do, their, their own report assesses that Moscow believes the Baltic region to be NATO's vulnerable point. So they see that if there is going to be uh, a Russia-NATO conflict, they believe that's going to take place on their doorstep. So, so yeah, they, that, that is a threat that they uh, take very seriously. And what about Estonia's own military readiness? Has that changed significantly since the invasion? Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean, they have been steadily increasing their defences, but... Um, we had a visit um, from the Estonian Defence Minister, Hanno Pevka, while we were covering Exercise Springstorm. And he talked about recent government move to increase the army to about 44,000 men, which he said was a third more than currently. And, and he was talking through all the new purchases and commitments with defence. And that is because of their attitude to Russia and their the way they, they see Russia. They still have the same approach uh, during the uh, as during the Second World War. So destroy everything and then move and don't care about people. So this is the, their understanding of uh, war. Uh, this means that we have to be more clever. So we increase our wartime uh, structure. We will buy uh, HIMARS. We will have uh, 
uh, anti-vessel systems, uh, we will have uh, our own air defense, we will have uh, loitering, so we will buy a, and, and much more. So this is exactly what, and this is exactly why Estonia has increased our defense spending to 3%. Next year actually it will be even 3.2. So uh, this is exactly what we are doing and, and this is exactly why we you know, advocate also for that, that the other countries have to do the same because, you know, Russia as a threat will never go away. And are they listening, the other allies? You advocate this, are they listening to you? Yes, they are. So when we take also, let's say, Germany and Zeitenwende, 100 extra billions, when we look at uh, Poland, of course, the frontline countries, uh, the eastern flank of NATO, uh, they are doing more and they have to, as Estonia is doing but also the others. So uh, I see definitely during the, our meetings with our my colleagues that there is a change in attitude. And this is the most important thing, uh, not only helping Ukraine, but also bringing NATO to new level. Of course, it's the UK that leads NATO's enhanced forward presence in Estonia. And the minister mentioned, mentioned that, and, and he talks about the UK, well, I don't know how seriously he takes it, but he mentioned uh, Britain as his favourite nation. So, so they do appreciate the, the level of support there. Because they've worked together for a long time. That history goes back to Afghanistan. And the UK, as you say, has been the lead in NATO's enhanced forward presence in Estonia for six years now. It's been a big provider of air policing too. I wonder, though, if privately they are a bit miffed that our military surge that came straight after the invasion of Ukraine didn't actually endure. Well... Uh- that's interesting because yes, I mean I think their their position um, prior to Ukraine has always been nobody listens to them that Russia is this huge threat nobody's listening and and now with the invasion of Ukraine um, they 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 feel they're being proved right and and so they were you know very much reassured by that doubling of numbers that came um, in the early response to to the uh, the Russian invasion and yeah I, you do you do hear those those noises that you know. That numbers have gone down and, and, and you can see that um, that is something that they would uh, ideally I think yeah they'd like more from everyone and, and, and yes it wasn't talked about very much um, and of course the UK position is well you know we still have a strong presence here and we can reinforce it very quickly see uh, you know what they're doing in the exercise and, and, and so on but, but yes I think there is a bit of a feeling of that. Rosie Layden, thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Professor Michael Clark will be back with me for another sit rep next Thursday. In the meantime, don't forget you can listen to us wherever you want, wherever you get your podcasts, follow or subscribe, and you will never miss an episode. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and bye-bye. 